and welcome to Bushwalker's Diary. Here I am, Kavita Joshi. Today I have got a new guest. Uh, here I am with Joel. Hey Joel, how are you going? Yeah, I'm good. Yourself? Very good. And I've got you here to talk about some bushwalking and all your all of your adventures. Yeah. So what have you been doing recently, Joel? Recently? I've been um, working on fitting out this van that we're sitting in right now. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So Joel has a really cool big van and he travels and lives in a van life. So I'll call it, a, he's living a van life, basically. <laughs> How long have you been in the van, Joel? Uh, well, I guess I've officially moved in this year to this one. Um, yeah. How many vans do you have? Me? Oh, one less than what I need. <laughs> <laughs> I, I heard you have three vans. Yeah, at the moment. So why three? Uh, well, it's good. This, well, as you can see, this thing is huge. You can have a party in this thing. So I don't want it, need to drive it everywhere, but I've got to do another one that's more one to run about. And then just a, a spare one. Uh, so I'm really inspired looking at your lifestyle van. Uh, van life, Joel. Uh, you travel, you live in one, and I feel like it's a mobile home for you now. Pretty much. Very well. Uh, I wanted to talk to you about your bushwalking experience, yeah. as well as canyoning. Uh, as I'm aware, um, you are into canyoning, and also you do a lot of hiking. Yeah, well, I guess that's how we met, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we met online through Facebook Marketplace. When I was chasing down a lilo. Yes, I was selling my lilo, never used. And it, oh, it was brand new. It was brand new, yes. You got a good deal there. <laughs> I did get a good deal, actually. I managed to knock a, knock a bit of the cost down. Yeah, it was really lovely. I, I think we met in a climbing gym, because, and I found out that he climbed there as well, climbed it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that's... Actually, yeah, that's right, because we saw each other around a bit after that. Yeah, yeah, for out. climbing. And I think I told you that I was going to Kanangra for canyoning the same weekend. We had that conversation as well. Remember? I remember that bit. Yeah, I was doing Kanangra main where the slot canyon, and then that's how I found out that you into canyoning as well. Ah. And then uh, since then, we, me and Joel, we actually did few canyons in a group, and we actually ended up going to noons. You remember that? Yeah. And we did few Got through starlight. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it was lovely. And uh, so tell me, how did you get into hiking in the first place? Um, let me think. It probably went back to my university days. So I never considered myself being very good at sports because I grew up in a little country town on the mid-north coast of New South Wales. And everyone either played cricket or played football. It sounds like India with cricket. <laughs> yeah. And me being, you know, just a skinny, shy guy, I was um, not good at either. But when I went to university, that was my first real opportunity to um, to get into more of the outdoor sports. Mm -hmm. Before that, I'd, I'd done some scuba diving oh, nice. when I was in high school. Um, actually, where I grew up, I learnt to dive at Fish Rock Cave. Oh, it's a beautiful location. I've been there. Yeah. So... When I was doing my open water certification, I got to go through the cave as part of the oh, wow. part of that course with the dive master. So that was probably the first real taste of adventure that I had was that cave. Like, I oh, don't know, it's not exactly cave Oh, actually, I guess it is cave, cave diving. A little bit cave. It's yes. 120 metres long. You need to get down to the entrance at 22 metres. Oh, all right. Yeah. yeah. And then you come out at about 14 metres. Um, but when I went to university down at Wollongong, 
Uh, there's an outdoor club. I went along to that. And, yeah, quite enjoyed it. And it wasn't long. Like, I, I think I did a couple of hikes, like down the Butterwangs and things. Oh, yeah. But it wasn't long before I was um, going on rock climbing trips. Oh, nice. So, after hiking, you got into rock climbing. Yeah. Through the club at uh, college or how? Yeah, at, at the University of Wollongong, the outdoor club, which I ended up becoming the president of for two years. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Um, yeah, I, I actually got into rock climbing in a big way and, um, Wollongong's not far from Nowra, so yeah, I did a lot yeah. of sports climbing, uh, and then Rod Young, who, who then owned Hangdog Climbing Gym, uh-huh. he taught me how to climb the traditional way. Wow, because I know you do a lot of trad climbing now too. Yeah, well, I always have. Yeah. Yeah, I probably, I mean, I pushed some grades at Nowra early on, but it was I transitioned pretty quickly into doing a lot of trad, um, probably within six months of me committing to climbing, I spent a couple of weeks down at Mount Arapiles. Wow. And that was, that really turned the tide for me about what sort of climber I was. Because I think Arapiles is still on my list. Every year there are <laughs> friends going there and I'm like, oh, God, this on and that on. Yeah, it's yeah. still on my I think we were hoping to go at Easter this year before yeah, the COVID hit. before COVID happened. Yes, yeah. that's true. So, um... Yeah, and I had a really good climbing partner who was actually my um, lecturer. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, when I was when I studied um, functional anatomy. Um, so we just got along well. We had a, a similar idea of how to make things safe, good communication. We were both pretty fit. So we made really good climbing partners, and we, were, we could sort of push each other. And I think you need to know each other well and be able to trust each other when you climb together. Yeah. Even more so in the trad, I would say, don't you reckon? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I think I appreciated it more trying to find a partner subsequently when he got busy mm-hmm. after he got married and had kids. Um, yeah, had some pretty pretty hairy... Um, ended up in some pretty hairy situations, I think, with people who conflated their experience. <clears throat> I think that happens all the time. I heard a lot of accidents happen in Blue Mountains like that. If you climb with somebody you don't know much about and you go, okay, let's go do this climb, especially lead climbing. It's a bit of a risky area. Yeah, yeah, that's right. People get to the end of the end of their pit, first pitch and then they try and figure out what they need to communicate <laughs> back to their new partner. Um, yeah, so I guess when, um, yeah, when I couldn't find another partner that I was that comfortable with, that's when I got... Uh, actually into ultra marathon running. Oh wow, okay. Yeah. Um, so how many kilometers are we talking about? Well, technically anything longer than a marathon mm. is an ultra. Um, in my case, I was really um, aiming towards the 80 kilometer. Wow. Yeah, so it's basically two marathons yes, back to yeah. back. Um, and I did a lot of training on my own actually throughout my sort of early mid-20s. Um, yeah. Like for months on end, actually, I'd run a marathon each weekend, usually on my own out in the bush somewhere. Um, so it was kind of a, it was kind of exciting in a in a different way, having to navigate uh, when you when you're running through the bush, mm-hmm. yeah, having to to work on the orientation and navigation. Um, and did you always run, or you just got into long distance running straight away? <laughs> It was actually, I did a lot of unicycling when I was at oh, university. Oh, wow, okay, I did not know that about you, Joel. 
Uh, and so that actually got me really fit. Uh, I studied physiology, and so I got to do VO2 tests. Yeah. And they measure how efficiently you can burn oxygen. Uh-huh. And I was right up the top end. Wow. Uh, so you not... were very fit. Well, I was then, yeah. It's funny because I, I did get it tested not long after I started uni, and I was like average to good. Mm-hmm. But then through unicycling and the climbing, I guess, climbing is actually quite aerobic. Um, Good for conditioning as well. Yeah, yeah, totally. So I ended up getting really fit, and so running felt pretty easy, and it didn't take me long. Once I, I gave it a couple of months just to get my tendon strength mm-hmm. up and things, but yeah, it didn't take me long before I was running um, like eighty k k's at a time and, and pretty comfortably. Wow. Um, and then I wanted to do it fast, so I could I could do eighty k's in less than eight hours. Wow, that's pretty impressive. And yeah. did you have like a mentor or a trainer, or were you training yourself? I uh, just on my own, just playing around, and uh, like that's not even that fast. Like the, the speeds that people can do, eighty k's or, or fifty mile mm-hmm. events, um, is pretty phenomenal actually. Yeah. yeah, they do it in half that time. <laughs> I think I've only done half a marathon twice, and that's pretty much my limit. <laughs> so I can't even imagine ultra marathons. I've read a couple of books of people running in the desert and stuff like that. I recently read a book of a very famous Australian who actually was in the fire and she lost most of her skin because of yeah. being on fire so that like sounds like very crazy places people go to do these ultra marathon so what was the motivation for you to get into this all these adventures including canyoning climbing we haven't talked about canyoning we'll come back to that and uh, also the ultra marathon yeah i think just that sense of exploration um yeah I- and and running's a great way to get through an area really quick. Um, although you can have some dramas too. I tried to run one day from Katoomba all the way through to, to Mittagong. Wow. In a day. I'd, in a day? Yeah, I'd hiked it in a couple of days um, earlier that year. And I was in good form, but I ended up getting bit by a tick. And so I crossed the Cox's River, went up Mount Coulomb, I yeah. think it is, before you get onto Scott's Main Range heading south. And oh, I was in this world of pain. I, I got really bad stomach cramps and I couldn't eat. And in the end, drink. And then I got disoriented. Um, wow. And this was in winter. And you by yourself? Yeah, I was on my own. It's probably the closest I've ever come to pulling out the PLB, actually. Because uh, I, I found myself a couple of times like sleeping on the road and getting back up and going the wrong way, back towards Katoomba. <laughs> and then I, but then the moon was out and I, I knew that, it, anyway... I ended up sleeping on the caretaker's doorstep at Urandri <laughs> and he found me the next morning and, you know, wow. gave him the whole story and I got a lift out luckily. Um, but yeah, so you can have some pretty big dramas as well. But I kind of like, yeah, the idea of being able to get a lot done in a small time. Um, and I think the next step from that was tiger walking. Are you familiar with that Tiger term? walking? Yeah. Uh, could you explain it for our audience, please? Uh, probably one of the original tiger walkers in Australia would have been Dot Butler. Um, oh, yes. I've she, heard about her. Yeah. I think she was called the Barefoot Bushwalker. Yes. yes. She used to catch a train up from Sydney to Katoomba and sleep under some newspapers and just go out and crank out huge hikes. Um, Dorothy Butler, yes. Yeah. But they, I think... Even then, they had a, a really efficient ethos. And, and I think from my time spent trad climbing, where 
me and my partner could get a lot of climbing done in a day because we had good communication, mm -hmm. good systems. Um, and I kind of took that mentality to hiking uh, when I started to get into hiking. And um, I read a book called the, the PCT Through Hikers Guide by Ray Jardine. Oh, yes, I know that. Book. Yeah. PCT is also is on my list in future <laughs> someday. So, yeah, he, he, um, he actually designed the cam, the mm. climbing cam. Oh, wow. Yeah, I yeah, he's an engineer. Oh. Uh, so he did a lot of climbing, like at Yosemite, like back in the 60s. Yeah, wow. Um, and then when he got into hiking, he completely redesigned the equipment to be really light because there was a lot, of, lot better materials that had come out. Um, so that would have been, wow, the early 2000s when I read that book. And so, yeah, so I got myself a sewing machine and made like a, a little uh, backpack. Well, it's not that little. It's probably like 50 litre backpack out of nylon. Cost me $15, wow. but it only weighs 200 grams. Yeah, so Joel has a lot of uh, light gear, backpacking material, and a lot of gear he had made himself. And there's a video online as well he has done. Don't you, haven't you, uh, Joel? You have yeah, done a yeah, video right. about it. Yeah. And he has explained how he has used these backpacking uh, gear. For how long were you on a hike? Oh, that was a long, I think it was four days down the Butterwing. Four days on a Butterwing, which is quite impressive. So you can check it out if you guys like. So Joel, so uh, would you like to explain the audience a little bit about your gear making system? Um, yeah, it's basically get an old sewing machine <laughs> and teach yourself how to use it. Uh, so yeah, probably the thing that really got me into it was finding good fabrics. There was mm -hmm. a, a company in Canada called Textile Outfitters mm -hmm. and you could buy all of the latest cutting edge fabrics um, off the roll wow. per meter. Um, at close Online? Yeah, yeah, online, uh, close to warehouse prices. So they had all of like the Polytech, all the new Polytech fabrics. And, and I made a, a sleeping, like a tarp, mm -hmm. uh, instead of a tent, it's just like a, like a, like the fly, just a fly. Mm -hmm. Um, but it uses silicon impregnated nylon. So like that ripstop nylon that mm -hmm. I don't know you probably use for stuff sacks and things, but they impregnate it with, with silicon. So it's waterproof. Oh. Oh, super light actually i think they make shopping bags out of them now too wow okay. little compact ones and again that so that weighed for a tent 350 grams which is super light yeah and then i made a um actually i've got it in here the quilt yes, i made a yes, primal yes. off quilt i've shown you that one yes, yes and it sort of wraps around my neck when i lay in the fetal position so instead of uh <laughs> sleeping bag because you prefer to use the quilt yeah yeah well it's because you when you're laying in a sleeping bag you're squashing half of it anyway yeah you only really need the quilt and then a mat underneath. So again, 800 grams and I can sleep in the snow with that one. And um, you also have customised it so it doesn't reach your head, I heard. The quilt reaches up to... Yeah, just my know, neck. Yeah, neck. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you saved the weight. Yeah, there. totally. So, um, and I mean, this guy, Ray Jardine, he took a real engineering approach and, and he walked the Pacific Crest Trail, which is, I think, is it? Four or five thousand kilometers people from Mexico do it in to Canada. Six months, yeah. Yeah, it takes six months. So he do did it. it three times, and he took a very meticulous approach to how to make his work gear work together. And I just copied him basically. Um, I made some lightweight, you know, rain gear, and I think I've seen your rain gear, rain pants, and rain jacket. Yeah, they look pretty lightweight. 
Yeah, they're pretty unfashionable as well. <laughs> well, I think it doesn't matter if, how you look in the bush. That's what I figured. As long as you enjoy, like, I, I feel like if I have extra few kg, I enjoy the bush less because I'm carrying that weight. Yeah. Uh, whereas if I'm lightweight with my backpack and my gear, I enjoy it a lot more. Like yeah. day pack is so much easier to carry than carrying something for seven days, for example. Yeah, for sure. You look around more, you less good bogged down. I think that's another problem for new people who get into bushwalking. If they want to go for multi-day, they get a really heavy pack. Even today I was looking at my friend's pictures. First time five years ago when he started bushwalking, I couldn't find him behind the backpack. Mm. The backpack was like 80 liter and he was full to the brim. A lot of food, a lot of alcohol. And there was four days walk and it must be very heavy. And if you carry that much weight, you can't really enjoy the walk. I can't. Yeah. Well, just the backpack is usually three or four kilos. Yes. And that's what my base pack weight is without food and water. Wow. That's, that's everything is what just their backpack weighs. Wow. Um, yeah. And I, I had that experience actually. I did Federation Peak down yes. in Tasmania. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a pretty wild hike with a bit of a climb at the end. Um, but I had a terribly heavy pack. Like, yeah, looking back, and it was quite a, a struggle to do that walk, but yeah, once I got this other system together, um, very different experience, much more comfortable. You can sort of stop, have dinner, and then keep going again. You've yeah. got like all the yeah. energy to, yeah. to go, and I don't know, you're a bit more attuned to how to make the best use of things around you. Yeah, so do you still hike with all your lightweight gear? Yeah, well, what it turned out to be really useful for was mountaineering. Mm. Um, so two years ago, I did the High Alpine Skills course mm -hmm. with the New Zealand Alpine Club uh, on Mount Cook. Mm -hmm. um, and then when I kicked on after that, that little tarp that I'd made, it's, it's great. Just did you take it with you? Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I didn't use it on the course because we are in a hut. Yeah. But when I did some trips afterwards um, through southern New Zealand, the little tarp was great. I could sort of build a little shelter out of rocks, um, put some moss down, and just use this thin little tarp as really? a cover. And I didn't need a tent. And like there are all these things that sort of crossed over from that ultra lightweight hiking into mountaineering yeah. and the equipment. Um, and I guess the mindset too, like yeah, how to make yeah. the most out of, of not much at all. Because when you're mountaineering and you get to altitude, every kilo, like you have to Weighs really work lot. to yeah. drag it up a mountain. And you have to have a snow stake and ice axe and an ice hammer and a probe and like all of this stuff. And so there's actually not a lot left over mm. for your camping and food. <laughs> so, yeah, it actually turned out to be quite useful um, to have the mindset going into mountaineering. Just knowing how little I could get away with and still, you know, be able to be reasonably comfortable pretty inspiring because I've always heard people when they go to snow and you need a four season tent you need this you know, and a lot of that actually weighs a ton including the sleeping bag because you need a heavy duty or a very warm sleeping bag that also gets heavier than your regular sleeping bag so what I'm hearing here is you can actually use your ultralight gear if you they are durable enough to take it on the snow and multi-use them uh, to a degree. To a degree. <laughs> Were you warm enough? Um, yeah, well, I mean, if, if you're in like a bowler field, yeah. then yeah, you can, you can often find somewhere that's sheltered. Like if you, if you, if the wind's in the right direction and, and it's, and you know, the, the stars align. Um, cause I, I, 
I actually, I have done a hike in New Zealand. Or it's it, it requires ice axes mm. and crampons, getting over Ball Pass, oh, yeah. which is um, on one of the lower flanks of Mount Cook. Um, but I ended up getting taking a wrong turn and having to backtrack and camp for the night right on the pass. Were you alone? Yeah, I was on my own for that trip. And and I, I had a proper mountaineering tent, <laughs> luckily, because it was blowing a gut. Like, yeah, yeah. I was so scared to take my tent out of the cover because it could so easily get whipped out of my Whoa. hands in this phenomenal wind. I don't know how I got the thing up without tearing or breaking tent poles. Or losing the whole tent. Yeah, and I had to haul these probably 50 kilo, at least 50 kilo boulders to tie the thing down to. And I was so wrecked at the end of this long day. Anyway, <laughs> a tarp definitely would not suffice in that <laughs> environment. But if you know that it's somewhere sheltered, like yeah. where you can get on, out of the wind or, you know, make other use, then yeah, it's got its place, but... So I think you have to go with the whatever you have information available or what, what kind of place you're going. You have to prepare for it. Yeah. I advise the audience not to go and adventure with some lightweight gear if it's not the right environment. It can definitely lighten your weight and give you a lot of enjoyment out of regular trips. But if you're going to snow, be careful what you take with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there's lots of people listening that have had a... A bad night's sleep in a bivy bag in their time. <laughs> well, I, I myself have another long time ago. I took a half a tent, the outside fly, in their tie uh, a couple of months ago. And it was three degrees. Uh, it got to zero degrees at some point. If we were in a, somehow in a frosty hollow, it got really cold at night, full moon. So it was really clear day. So it didn't have any clouds. It didn't help with the, it was a bit windy as well. And I tried to erect this fly outside the tent with nothing. So I didn't have any pegs. I used my hiking pole and I found a lot of sticks around. It looked a very wilderness <laughs> enabled tent to me. It didn't really help. It kind of gave a shelter a little bit, but it wasn't that good. So that's when I started thinking about gear a bit more, thinking what kind of lightweight gear can I find? And when I looked online, there were a lot of expensive gear. Even a tent, a lightweight, under a kg tent, I could find for six to $700, for example, American made from REI. And that was a bit disappointing because uh, I was like, okay, I don't have this much money. I don't want to spend $1,000 just on gear, just to be able to go out, do an overnighter. And that's why I think we talked about making our own gear and you told me that we're going to do a project and sow some more, more of our own gear. Yeah, I think the... That thrifty mindset goes hand in hand with the dirtbag lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think my tarp, I think it was about $50 worth of sil, sil net. And actually, even my pack, I think it was $15 worth of nylon and wow. cordura. Yeah. Yeah. And being able to make your own, like it, it cuts both the weight and the, and the price. And now you can customize it as per the size you want and... I think that's a great skill to have, Joel. Um, I'm quite inspired, so hopefully one day I'll be able to make my own gear. Joel, tell us about some of your best experiences in the outdoor environment. Some of the best things, I think it's when, uh, like I was saying with the tread climbing that I was doing early on, where you really gel with someone and you're on the same wavelength 
things just work together really well. Uh, and lately, I only moved to Sydney five years ago, but I've really jumped into the Kenyoning scene. Um, and I think probably the the way that that sport can can give you that experience is, uh, is the white water Kenyoning. Um, I've done a few trips to New Zealand now um, with David Miles, um, Ben Thomas. Um, ben Thomas was there too? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, we were actually, we were Kenyoning together this year. Um, wow. Uh, yeah, so, yeah, th there was, um, I think there were five or six of us that went through the general this year. It's was it as part of a canyoning festival or you just no, it was, on a private trip? Yeah, we went a little bit later than what the festival was this year, um, just because conditions are a little bit better down in the south. Um, but yeah, we, we like one of the days we went through the general and there's 44 pitches. Wow. Yeah, in that canyon. In one day? Yeah, in a, yeah, in a day. Um, so, I mean, we're all really experienced and so it was just good. Like We just sort of had like a rolling, you know, lead, so... Whoever's at the back of the group moves their way to the front, sets up the next pitch and manages it while people pass through. Um, but uh, uh, probably I've had better experiences in more technical mm -hmm. whitewater canyons in New Zealand where you really need everyone to be on point with their communication um, and their navigation through quite turbulent water, mm -hmm. um, either on the rope or off a rope. Um, I think rope management becomes really important when it's flowing water, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, um, it's pretty easy to lose your rope. <laughs> um, or just, yeah, the way that you're interacting with the rope so that it, you've got redundancies or... Um, Does a PLB work in a canyon? Oh, in New Zealand? Oh, it might in, in some parts of them. They open up a bit. I wonder, I've never thought about it. I've always carried a PLB, which is a personal locator beacon. Uh, emergency device you can call help with, but yeah. I wonder if there is enough signal in a canyon sometimes. Yeah, I mean you could in Australia you could usually find somewhere that'll give you, give you a signal. Actually, same in New Zealand. Uh, there are some that'll be it'll be pretty challenging, but um, I mean, I'm just thinking of a scenario if you lose your rope. Because oh. we, do you remember meeting this guy in the campground from Europe? He actually lost one of the ropes on Kanangra because he was doing the canyon alone. Oh, that's right. That guy from Europe. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that kind of reminds me, it's not always safe to go alone on a canyon. I remember some people I've known who love to go on a canyon so much that they just rather go alone if they don't find anybody. Yeah. But it's the same rule in diving. Some people dive alone. It's not recommended. Mm. Yeah, I guess if, you're, um, yeah, if your tank springs a leak... Or any gear fa failure, yeah. you don't have a duplicacy. Yeah, getting your rope stuck. If you're on your own <laughs> in a canyon, that wouldn't be a good day at all. Uh, I guess that's why, like with the whitewater canyons, a group of four is a good size. And you've usually all got ropes. Yeah. So if something goes wrong, you know, you, you've got redundancy there. Um, How many years have you been doing canyoning for? Well, I mean, I was, I was doing it 20 years ago. When I was at Wollongong Uni, I, I used to lead uh, groups through Macquarie Pass Canyon. Oh, wow. Um, and then I'd do, um, I'd, I'd do it on, on weekends where I wasn't climbing, like just for the fun of it. Mm. Um, so, and I was hanging out with a bunch of people that were guides from um, Outward Bound um, after uni. But, yeah, when I moved to Sydney, I think that's when I got a bit more serious about the sport. And 
yeah, going and having a taste of the white water stuff in New Zealand really, yeah, got me excited to, um, to sort of, yeah, commit to the sport a bit. And it's a great combination. Like you need to you need all the bushwalking skills to navigate to the to the start of it. Um, you need your climbing skills to get to the anchors. You need white water skills to be able to read the the flow, mm-hmm. um, and then all the Kenyan skills to manage the ropes and. And you get abseiling and all that yeah. going on. Yeah, that's right. Um, actually, and I used to, I was in a caving club as well when I was in Wollongong. Oh wow! So I guess that's where you get good at going up <laughs> ropes, because <laughs> any any time you go down a rope in a cave, you've got to go back up it to get out. Um, so Have yeah. you ever had to prosik up a rope? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because I think I've done some training how to prosik up a rope. It's bloody hard. Yeah. I know, it all, it all sounds great in theory until you get about three metres up and you're stuffed. <laughs> <laughs> and you're tired and you're sweating because you already spend most of the day canyoning. Yeah. And if you're trying... Is it... Um, how do you recommend if your rope is stuck somewhere, you always recommend to go up, plastic up on it? No, because you don't know what it's stuck on. Um, so you're better off just cutting off what you got and keep going. That's why everyone should have a rope, really, if you go on canyoning, um, especially something big like at Canangra. Mm-hmm. Um, Really, everyone should have a 60-meter rope, uh, where most of the pitches there are close to, or quite a few of the pitches are close to 60, 60 meters. 60 meter, yeah. So I think you're meant to have at least three times the longest pitch in ropes. Um, so, but yeah, again, if you got. To, what do you mean? Like 60-meter pitch means you need 180 meter. Yeah, yeah. So technically, you should have. Three, three, one, ropes. three 60 meter ropes so oh, that okay. yeah so that if you're pulling pulling a, a double rope um pitch and you and you know the tail flicks over itself at the end at least you can cut off what you've got and still get through the next 60 meter pitch if you if you need to with what you've got left um, yeah, that's true yeah have you ever had uh close calls while canyoning Oh yeah, I mean, when I was younger, uh, mm. <laughs> like at university, I've I've gone up ropes that I didn't know what it was stuck on, and looking back, it was a bad move. I've um, heard a lot of accidents happen when people try to go up on a rope if they don't know if it come and is stuck while you're climbing it up. Yeah, yeah, you're probably more likely to come get into trouble going de- getting stuck going down, and I think that's where we're trying to shift into the releasable um, releasable anchors now, where you can tie a munter hitch or use a figure eight block um, so that if someone gets into trouble, their hair gets caught or, you know, uh, there are, actually when I was at university, there were a couple of deaths in the Blue Mountains from people getting tangled up and getting very cold and then not being able to manipulate the rope anymore. Uh. And so they end up, because the people above couldn't release them, because uh, I think there'd often be another person that would go down the rope. Um, Trying to help the stuck person. That's right. And then they both get tangled up and cold. And once their hands can't work, they they just have to wait there until they die from hypothermia. Yeah. Um, if no one can get to them. Um, and, I and think long hair also is a problem. You have to be very careful because I think I have seen a lot of pictures on Facebook from Picanyanos. Yeah. And trying to, I think I had a recent videos where when they're trying to cut somebody's hair, they're stuck in the... 
Uh, rope on the rope as much as you like to look nice in a canyon i think <laughs> I, you pref you should prefer putting your long hair away from the rope as much as you can yeah i've been there before as well <laughs> <laughs> you have yeah yeah well, i've had to rip a chunk out of my of oh. hair out before getting stuck but um yeah i mean things like that that with with the new rigging systems like the the munter mule overhand or the figure eight block um they kind of do away with a lot of that risk of getting caught as long as you can you've got enough rope to let them down to the ground yeah. but um yeah so i think that's probably one of the best um one of the one of the best attributes of the new style of canyoning yeah single rope style um which i think australia's been a bit reluctant to to embrace right yeah i think in europe that's pretty common isn't it yeah part of it's probably the rock type mm -hmm. um like australia you, you get those ironstone ridges and the idea of going over an edge on a single rope, if it starts to rub or if it slips, um, and, and I think that's where the, the whole kind of anchor management um, comes into play as well. <laughs> Maybe having to put a bolt in, <laughs> dare I say. Yeah, I think some people uh, are in the favour of putting a bolt, some people are not. So I'll, I'll leave the controversy out of this topic. <laughs> What do you think about, because I also have done a lot of canyons with you and um, with other groups and I find it a very team bonding exercise in so many ways because you can't canyon with people and have fun if you don't get along well with them or you don't work as a team member. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think coming back to Australia after doing the more exciting stuff in New Zealand, that is more that social element that, um, that keeps you going. Like I love taking beginners out. Um, you know, canyoning because you kind of experience that the newness and like the uniqueness of the, the the environments that we get to go in when you see it through a beginner's eyes. That's true. I think I've seen you organising a lot of group trips to Blue Mountains and other places for canyoning. Yeah, we've had some pretty interesting group trips actually. <laughs> uh, and uh, Joel has been <laughs> actually organising quite a few. Uh, how would I say Halloween parties or yeah, we dress do. Up yeah, lots of different dress-up ones. I think I was, I was Joe Exotic in the Tiger King-themed Kenyan, the last one I did this year. Um, and there was another based on a TV show? Uh, yeah, that was the one based on Netflix. Netflix, okay. And you probably saw me get up in stockings yeah. as uh, Frankenfurter. <laughs> I think that was our Valentine's trip. That was a hoot. Um, yeah, and I think things like that, it really does you know, help to, to bond a group better. Um, it brings some colours and flavours you wouldn't regularly see in a canyon because everybody in a wetsuit, in a helmet. The pictures don't have so many colours unless you have a colourful wetsuit. But yeah, I really enjoy seeing your pictures on Facebook. <laughs> I still have to go on one of those trips probably one day. Oh really? What theme should I put on for you? Uh, I don't know. Uh, I might have to get back to you on that. <laughs> because I feel like I'm not sure if I'll be very comfortable in the winter, but probably in the summer when you can actually afford to not have a wetsuit. Maybe we should do a pyjama party. <laughs> ah, onesie. But it might be too much if it's too much water. Yeah, yeah. Onesie one would be a good one. Yeah, the, um, it, it's turned out like the canyoning scene has turned out to be really social for me yeah. um i think maybe because of my approach to, to rock climbing back in the day was more just to work my way through a lot of routes with my partner that specific partner um but now it, yeah it's it's a very social scene um uh, really fun and i think there's a lot of us that um are quite 
all of our values seem to align. Yeah, we have a lot of a lot of fun together. So yeah, I think it's a great sport. It's, I mean, it would need to be because it's quite time intensive. Yeah, <laughs> to drive up to the mountains. A lot of commitment, and uh, it's. I feel like. For me, I also believe you put your, your life into somebody else's hand. You risk it all because you trust that person to belay you properly or from the top or the bottom or if there's somebody who's doing the rope management or anchor management, that's very important for me to have faith in that person to make sure that I'm safe with that person. And I feel like I have been with some of my friends in a very tricky situations where the rope got stuck or it got really late, it was dark, we were still in a canyon. And those are the time when you need to know how to, how your partner reacts or how your team is going to react to certain things, you know, to be able to not have extra panic, which you don't need in an already weird situation. So, yeah, I feel like I made a lot of friends through canyon. What do you think? Have you made any lifelong friends through oh, canyon? Yeah, completely. Yeah, I think... Uh, those those scenarios like the Whitewater Canyons where you really have to know that people have got your back and they're giving you good advice, working together as a team. Like there are so many ways that you can drown in those canyons and getting through it safely. It's it really does help to bond people um, and yeah, just build trust among a group. <laughs> um, have you ever experienced flash flood in a canyon? No, I haven't gone in. <laughs> good idea <laughs> i yeah. think in the u.s i have some seen some videos even in australia and u.s when there's a flash flood uh, it's advisable to check the reservoir from where the water is coming to a canyon before mm. you have a canyon it might not rain that day but if it had been raining a few days ago it might be the chances are that canyon can have a flash flood Mm. If the audience doesn't know what flash flood is, can you explain the flash flood, please? It's basically like flushing a toilet. <laughs> Especially, I've done a bit of canyoning in Utah, in the US, and there's no vegetation on a lot of the um, the uh, above a lot of the canyons there. It's just bare rock. So mm. any rainfall you get, all of it instantaneously just runs down through the, through yeah. the canyon, and li- it's literally like flushing a toilet. And they have these formations called keeper pots, mm-hmm. which is like a toilet bowl. Where water um, uh, runs in um, and kind of like circulates down and then up and creates a formation like a toilet bowl, wow. uh, and you can get stuck inside them. That's why they call it keeper pot. So one strategy is to tie your rope to your backpack, flick it over the lip, and then tentatively pull your way, like use the rope to climb yourself up to lip, straddle the lip, throw your backpack back into the bowl, abseil off your backpack, and then pull it down after you. Yeah, some very different techniques that you need in, the, yeah, in those environments. I've heard in the US you have a very different technique depending on a canyon. And the ghosting is also another technique. They don't have anchors. They use sandbags for that. Yeah, they bury sandbags. And there's different ways that you can tie a releasable knot, mm-hmm. like onto a tree or around a boulder, so that you don't have to leave webbing behind. Mm-hmm. Um, Anyways, that's a bit of a technical side of the canyoning, but probably I'm thinking I'll do another canyoning podcast episode specifically for our audience who would like to learn a bit more technical uh, side of canyoning. But we'll leave the canyoning side for now uh, from no further details about technical side. Thank you, Joel. It was lovely talking to you about all the adventures you had done. I think we will we should catch up once more 
a few more times in further podcast episodes. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, I've got some more adventures to share. Um, yeah, I think after mountaineering two years ago, it scared me a little bit. It's just, <laughs> it's just basically like doing trad climbing in snow, but with huge runouts. Um, but yeah, if this whole COVID situation hadn't gone down, I was hoping to get to get to Europe next year. Uh, maybe hit the the helps to get a bit more securing my footing and. Yeah, maybe ask if you wanted to go to Nepal the year after and, and yeah, hit some I'm peaks over there. Yeah, I'm always up for uh, some adventures. Probably I'll need some more training to catch up where you are. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there's not too... Actually, a lot of mountaineering's about reading the weather. So it's all preparation so that you you know what the risks are going to be like mm-hmm. and what timing, like at what time of day the sun's going to hit different parts of a mountain, uh, what the freezing point is. Um, it sounds like, yeah... <laughs> Because the placements are so tentative, putting ice screws and snow stakes in, it's almost a negligible part of how to protect yourself. But um, yeah, so hopefully, maybe um, when we can all travel again, it would be good to go and get into some real mountains. Yeah, yeah. I, I was in Europe uh, last year. Last two years, I've been in Europe traveling. If any of our audience has been listening, have been listening to prior episodes, I probably will do some more episodes regarding my trip to Europe. But uh, yeah, I was uh, hiking across Switzerland, so that was really nice experience. But I was going through the passes, not climbing the mountains. So probably one day I will go climb mountains in different parts of Europe. Uh, any plans do you have for near future for any adventures? Oh, stuck in well, New South Wales. <laughs> for at least the next six months. Who knows how long this is long as this is going to go for. Oh, I think I'll try and make, make good use of that surfboard that's hanging up above your head. <laughs> um, yeah, I went snorkeling today over at Gordon's Bay near Coogee. So, yeah, I might have to become a bit of a water baby this year. Well, what about canyoning? Do you reckon we can some canyon, you think? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's starting to warm up again. Um, I know it's hard to get excited about what we have in Australia. <laughs> <They're> <laughs> After more... you have done some New Zealand canyons. <laughs> yeah, I mean, they are beautiful in Australia. They're really lovely spots, but just not quite as adventurous as, yeah. as what other countries have. Um, I think I'm pretty happy to be back in Australia now because I haven't done much canyoning in Europe. It was only Slovenia I did a couple of canyons and uh, in Italy, near Lake Garda. Oh, and you did some in Taiwan at the start of your trip. Oh, yes, yes. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, uh, funny enough, in Taiwan, the guy didn't want to take us. He said it's rained too much and we have a lot of rain. Probably won't be able to do the canyon. And I was like, I was with another guy. and We both were individually booked for the same canyon and we talked about our experience. Turned out we both had enough experience to go and at least check out the canyon. And we end up going and doing the canyon, which had a lot more water than the guide had ever seen in his life. Oh, wow. Yeah, and, and it was great because he was really happy. In those conditions, he wouldn't be able to take normal, um, regular beginners. Uh, but he was happy that he was able to do the canyon with us. He said he has never been in a canyon with so much water. But beautiful canyons. Not many are explored or... Um, taken good advantage of by canyoners I think because there's a lot to be explored in Taiwan because a lot of cities are formed around gullies so they are township into gullies and then I could see the whole geography of Taiwan there's so much canyons that can be explored in the area mm. but I was quite um, surprised to see so much wilderness in Taiwan it's a small country 
but there was so much to explore. So yeah, I probably would like to go back to Taiwan to do that. Yeah, there's been some um, large sp sponsored teams yeah, establishing new canyons in Taiwan. So is in Nepal. There's a video about mm. exploration of Nepal oh, canyons. Yeah. yeah, they're quite You can committing. only imagine oh. <laughs> how long they can go on for. <laughs> yeah. Well, it sounds like you're going to have a lot of fun in New Zealand. Ah, where yeah. you can get over there for some canyoning. <laughs> that would be lovely, actually. I'm looking forward to go to some of the canyons there and also hiking. Mm. Because I have been to New Zealand twice, but I have never hiked in New Zealand. So I would love to go and explore some of the areas there. Yeah, that might be the, the long hike that we do, actually. The length of New Zealand, if that's as far as our bubble extends <laughs> in the near future. Yeah, it's true. I hope uh, travel opens up for at least within Australia. Because we are st still struggling to cross the borders. I just came back before the New Zealand... Before, sorry, Queensland closed the borders again. So, mm. All right. Uh, thanks, Joel, for the interview. Yeah, it's been I a pleasure. really enjoyed <laughs> I hope the audience got some really useful information from it and enjoy our conversation. Thank you, everyone. Bye-bye. See you next time. Bye.